0: Greetings, friends. Welcome to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where good taste and bad taste collide. Whoa! I just got knocked away from the explosion all crazy-like. No, no, what you do is you light a cigarette and you don't even look backward at it. Uh, but smoking's bad. um, unwrap a lollipop then you're like you're like Kojak (laughs) I don't think Kojak ever walked away from explosion (laughs) I suppose not it'd be cool if he did one of the failings of those shows Uh, my (laughs) name is Whitney Seibold I'm a film critic for IGN and various other outlets around the internet here and there Uh, I have no cool nickname but I do have a co-host who does
1: yeah my name is William Bibbiani baby who loves you I do. And, uh, yeah, I'm a film critic for The Wrap. Welcome to the Kojak Podcast. When did this happen? Never even actually watched that show. Uh, anyway, uh, my name is Linda Biani I'm a film critic for The Wrap and Bloody Disgusting in several other places as well. Everybody calls me Bibbs. And, uh, yeah, we've got a, a quite a few movie reviews for you this week. I hear i critically acclaimed. We're going to be reviewing the new releases, Knives Out, I Lost My Body, The Two Popes, and The Atlantics, and because we have actually had a lot of requests for people uh, who, from people who want us to talk about some movies that we missed throughout the year and we're catching up before the end of the year as award season looms and we have to do our best of the year lists and yada, yada, yada. Uh, so uh, we're going to review a few films that Whitney and I, or one or the other, miss the first time around that we get a lot of requests for. So I'm going to reviewing uh, Marriage Story. I finally got a chance to watch that. I finally got a chance to watch Booksmart. Finally um, got a chance. Right. To, finally, good, good for you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I finally got a chance to watch Rocket Man. Mm. Finally got a chance to watch Dora and the Lost City of Gold. And Whitney finally got a chance to see the report,
0: which which I'm not too far behind on. I think that opened one or two weeks ago. It was earlier this yeah. month. Like
1: you, you, you're behind, but it's, it's not ridiculous. Behind,
0: yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, those will be because
1: we've already talked about a lot of those. Those will be uh, bite-sized reviews, capsulized
0: reviews, pellet-sized mm. for all of our. Hamster listening friends. What's what's another, what's another small pellet-sized thing? What's a good <laughs> thesaurus word for a little tiny thing? A uh, pill. A pill review. A pill review. That just sounds like we're crabby. Yeah. What a pill. Here's my pill review. Yeah. This movie was stupid, but
1: it did clear up my sinuses. <laughs> um, well, yeah. Not, so we're not, not only
0: were the Kojak, but we're also like the commercials during daytime reruns of Kojak. <laughs> These pills cleared up my sinuses. Oui.
1: So uh, yeah, let's get right into it. Uh, the big release of the weekend was *Knives Out*. Not mm. super surprisingly, since it was actually mm. a pretty thin Thanksgiving weekend, but it did better than a lot of people anticipated for an ensemble murder mystery that isn't based on any familiar property. It's from mm. Ryan Johnson, the director of *The Last Jedi*, and. Uh, also, Looper mm. and The Brothers Bloom, which is really great. Check that movie out if you haven't seen it. Uh, and Brick, which is also fantastic. Um, and uh, yeah, has a great pedigree. A lot of cool people in the cast: Daniel Craig, mm. Jamie Lee Curtis, Anna, is, De, Anna De Armas, who really should be a bigger star than she is. Hopefully, this does it. Uh, Michael Shannon, yeah, Chris uh, Evans.
0: It's everybody loves a good murder mystery. I and think so. I think murder mysteries in film, like they've moved to TV. I mean, that's what like Law and Order and all those cop shows are about. They're yeah, all, every week. They're all murder mystery shows. Usually popular. For popular, uh, for whatever reason, those have moved out of cinemas. And when they show up in cinemas. Uh, they tend to make big deals of them, and they tend to do well. And I'm also thinking of Kenneth Branagh's Murder on the Orient Express, mm-hmm. which was uh, quite good, actually. Yeah, it's not as good as the Sydney Lumet film, but it's mm. still
1: good in its own right. It's like a slightly pulpier version, mm-hmm. a little broader, but it's great, and I'm
0: looking it's, forward to his follow-up Death on the Nile. Yeah, it's, it's really... Uh, I love, and I love that they ended it with the sequel tease. Yeah. Ah, Poirot, it's a good thing you've sold this thing on the Orange Express, but it, it appears there's been some death on the Nile. <laughs> like, that's actual dialogue from I, the movie. I know, I was super excited for yeah. it. I was, like, applauding in the theater. It was super it's like, great. Ah, good. And uh, I, I did, like, Brana's version of Poirot, and I want to see Brana's version of Poirot team up with M- Monsieur Benoit Blanc, played by Daniel Craig, from Knives Out. Yeah. Because they're both very uh, outspoken demonstrative detective characters mm, who are, who are obsessively well-dressed, have very thick accents uh, and are very funny. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, Daniel Craig puts on this, it, it's like a, uh, Cajun by way of Foghorn Leghorn kind of accent. Oh, like very nobody, broad. Ac- nobody has that accent. He kind of made it up for the movie. Like, I, I suspect if there was a
1: sequel mm. and we met Benoit Blanc's, like, parents, mm. they would be mildly Southern. And you'd find out yeah. uh, a lot of it is affectation. No, they, they'd both be
0: from Los Angeles. They'd just completely <laughs> you know, be like the Blue Raja. There you go. Um,
1: the plot of the movie, mm. uh, Knives Out, and this is a movie where... Um, oftentimes, when people talk about spoilers. We've discussed this on the show before. Spoilers have changed from actually ruining the movie because the, you reveal stuff you're not supposed to reveal uh-huh. to just telling you some stuff that's in the film, mm-hmm. whether or not it actually ruins the experience. Um, in Knives Out, there's actually a lot of spoilers. It's a murder mystery, and there are a few different layers of it. So there's a lot we cannot describe. So I'm going to give you the basic setup, but... Twists and turns happen quickly. Yeah, and this uh, isn't even this isn't even the whole plot. This is just the first like thirty minutes. Uh, there has been a murder, mm-hmm. or at least uh, or at least a highly suspicious suicide. Has the uh, it's a highly suspicious suicide that might be a murder. Yeah, has, has there been a murder? Christopher Plummer plays a rich. A murder mystery novelist who has a murder mystery house
0: filled with secret passages and secret windows. It's really cool. It's loaded with tchotchkes that look really, really great for a set designer. And he has a. A big? Do they ever really explain what the knives are? Uh, No, they don't. They explain that like some of them were used in theatrical productions, but there's no reason for him to have a knife sculpture. But it's sort of the centerpiece of the movie. He
1: has like a he has like a big sculpture full of knives. I in my head canon, I imagine there's like one knife for every murder mystery he ever wrote, and like this is the knife from
0: the book, or this is the knife from. They never made a movie out of any of his stuff, but so Benoit Blanc and the cops are interviewing all of the members of this family because everyone's a suspect.
1: Yeah. Right away. And so we've got uh, Tony Collette as the woman who married into the family. Her husband has died and now uh, she's sort of involved with the family financially. You've got Michael Shannon who is Christopher Plummer's son who is now running the publishing company but isn't really doing anything for himself and he keeps mm. asking dad will, will you sell the movie rights so we can make so much money. There's Chris Evans who's the grandson who is He's a spoiled cult- brat just comes in in sports cars and snaps at everybody and leaves because
0: nothing can touch him. He's made of money. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is the daughter and she is sublime in this movie She's and how so pissed off she is. And uh, Ana de Armas is the one who's sort of like observing all of this because she was the uh, the the help. She was the the hired maid who ended up becoming uh, kind of Christopher Plummer's best friend. Um, gosh, I'm, I feel like I'm forgetting somebody. Uh, Lakeith Stanfield uh, plays the cop. And it starts off with a series of interviews as to where people were the night of Christopher Plummer's death. Uh, was it a suicide? Does it look like a suicide? And uh, eventually it's revealed that Benoit Blanc is there to sort of aid the police, which is something he does every once in a while.
1: And the, the one um, twist I will tell you that's kind of fun, Benoit Blanc doesn't know who hired him. Right. He's been hired mm. to solve the potential murder of the world's greatest murder mystery novelist, and he doesn't know who hired him,
0: and he's just mm. like, Oh, I have to do this. Here, here's the thing: uh, Ryan Johnson has clearly read a lot of murder mysteries. This oh, is, yes. This is not a murder mystery made by somebody who is sort of fond of merely the aesthetics or the reputation of the genre. He's not dallying in he, the yeah, genre. Yeah, this is something he knows because all of, the character of Benoit Blanc, first just the name, his outspoken personality, and this weird, loose relationship he has with the local police and his confidence are all things that come straight out of. The murder mystery genre. Oh yeah, you get the impression that this is like the eighth Benoit Blanc novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah. And uh the yeah, the relationships he forms, the actual like who done it in the who-done it is all um very traditional until it's not. Uh yeah. There's there's, there's a couple actually, of really good turns in that. There's a few really good turns, and uh actually there's a lot of mysteries you don't think are going to be solved, uh until the end of the movie are solved really early on in the movie and you realize, like, this is not going in a direction you think it's going to. Yeah. And through... And it's not just the twisty plot. Ryan Johnson has... I think for the first time in his career, really. Mm. Well, when you look at something like Brick, everybody has this kind of outspoken, really theatrical way of speaking. Right. But it feels like those characters are trying to put on an affect, sort of like Cohen Brothers characters. They're well, trying to put on Because they're a high show. schoolers. They think yeah. they're smarter than they are. That's uh, the point of the movie. Here, the characters are just sort of more naturally witty. So the dialogue is actually very ornamentational. Mm. And it's full of a lot of wit and banter and Acid and cynicism and poison and everybody hates each other in a really amusing sort of way. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll
1: defend Johnson's earlier work in that regard, because, again, I think in Brick he's dealing with people who are young and putting on airs. And I think mm -hmm. in Brothers Bloom he's uh, people, the protagonists are con artists, so everything they say is an affect as well. But here's one where it's not like every single person is in on whatever is going on right, and so right. we're actually seeing a broadcast of characters many of whom are very very interesting. Um I have some serious critiques of this movie but I want to get this out of the way. Okay. It's fun. It's, it's funny. It's, fun, it's yeah. sharply directed. There's some really really nice touches just throughout the entire thing, the close attention, the almost clue-like fascination with everyone's uh, clothing, ah. with the all of the production design, yeah. uh, the sense of humor with which uh, Johnson reveals various clues, sometimes in the middle of a scene where other characters should be able to see the clue, but someone's like hiding the clue, and it's mm. hilarious, and um, it's a blast. It's a really, really entertaining watch. You know, we, we talk about how Murder Mysteries went to television, and the problem when you go to television is you have to do one a week. Mm-hmm. They don't always get thought out in a very special way, and you can't always get the kind of cast you do. I think that's the, one of the reasons why Murder on the Orient Express and Knives Out attracted the cast that they got, because, uh-huh. because everyone wants to be part of a big ensemble Agatha Christie-esque Murder Mystery but also why people went to go see them because it's a treat to see a murder mystery with an all-star cast. Yeah. And not just... i am mean, not No disrespect to anyone yeah. who works on CSI Law & Order or whatever, but like you're not going to get this cast or in one episode of Law & Order SVU. You're what, just not.
0: What's going to happen... Well, what happens on those shows is you get one celebrity guest, and of course, because they're your get, you're going to cast them in a significant role, uh-huh. which means they're always going to be the murderer. Or and, directly connected or, in some yeah, way. Yeah, or, they're or, they're or always going to be
1: significant. Mm.
0: Yeah. And so here... And
1: there are people in this in this movie who are big 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 stars who basically get to say some funny lines but they didn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> so so it's actually kind of a treat and it's hmm. a fun little thing. My problems with this movie are I wouldn't call them nitpicks, they just don't ruin the movie. Okay. But I think there's one thing that Ryan Johnson is too clever about. Hmm. Um Every single line of dialogue, every single stray joke or clue in this movie is important
0: later. Okay. Now, ordinarily, I would say that's a wonderful so piece a, of writing. Yeah, that's tight tight screenplay writing. You look yeah. at something like Die Hard, like Bonnie Bedelia turning the photo down turns out to be a plot point later yeah. on. Yeah, Die, Die Hard is I mean, yeah.
1: maybe the best screenplay ever written. There's a mm-hmm. legit argument to be made. It certainly belongs in the conversation. The problem with Knives Out is that it's so clever and everything is so important mm-hmm. that if you are going into it like a lot of murder mystery fans are going to, like myself, mm-hmm. I'm a murder mystery fan. You start looking for the clues. Okay. You start looking for what's the deeper meaning. And then you're you're frustrated by the lack of red herrings, are you? Exactly. Okay. And I think that's that's actually a problem. Okay. Because without stuff that actually doesn't mean anything, mm-hmm. You can predict the movie, and in fact, after, there's like one initial twist, which I was like, oh, that's kind of clever, mm-hmm. uh, and then everything after that was really predictable. Okay. Because I was paying attention, mm-hmm. and I realized that, okay, well, this twist happened, and so you'd think the movie's going to go in this direction, but actually, the movie might actually be kind of over unless there isn't more to reveal. Which means that all of these things that seem like nothing are actually really important. And now, oh, I know who did it. <laughs> and now I'm waiting for the movie to catch up. Okay. And it was fun to watch the movie catch up. You know, good murder mysteries can be watched over and over and over again because the mm. characters and the dialogue are so rich. Okay. But I think he might have been a little too clever for his own good in terms of making everything important. I think a few mm. actual stray threads well, would have made
0: this feel a little stronger for me. Here's what I appreciated. Um, he's very clever about giving every single character a motivation, which is important in a murder mystery. Um, y- y- people don't just sort of...
1: Pretty much. I think the, there's the, a few... There's the killer
0: st- rarely just sort of does it in cold blood, and when you do, it's right. kind of like a big twist. That everybody has a reason for killing the victim. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and When you finally realize who it was, and you realize that all of these other characters still had their motivation, uh, you realize that all of the characters are just dickheads. Yeah. And I I think he plays very fair with how awful these people are. True. Um, I've seen a lot of murder mysteries where sort of like the truth comes to light, and it kind of forgets about... All of these other things that it had set up, and I feel like Ryan Johnson is really good about keeping the characters with us throughout, even as the plot progresses, even as we, you know, know who did what and who's responsible for what thing.
1: That's a great point. And every single character, whether they did it or were involved or, or any or didn't, yeah. is changed. Yeah, by the end, as everyone has, if not a complete arc, then at least a complete story. Right. Um. And I think that's a really masterful piece of writing with a big ensemble cast. You do not want. Like you can say, like okay, well, so and so didn't do it, and so it didn't really amount to much. But their character went through something, and it was fun watching that, and it felt really rich. Like he didn't forget, yeah, about anyone. That that part is really really great. Um, I appreciate that Ryan Johnson attempted in this film to discuss matters of class. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the one of the grandkids or great grandkids
0: um, is like a <laughs> budding MAGA. Yeah, he's like he's, they, they call him to his face. He's an alt right troll. Yeah, and he's always on like white supremacist websites, he's yeah. like a big fan of I don't I don't remember that Nazi guy's where, name. Where, the, whatever. The guy bullshit. Who got punched in the face.
1: good. Um, he brings up a lot of stuff like that, and then never really does anything with it. Mm. And it it kind of frustrated me that he was using actual like relevance to what's happening today as window dressing more than anything else. There's one major well, subplot uh-huh. that does connect more because Anna de Armas' character is an immigrant and mm-hmm. she's trying to protect like her mother. Who yeah. you, The more they're investigating this, the more her mom might be at risk of being deported. Uh, but And and that almost, I feel like it almost gets like too cute with that rather than Ooh, just I, actually treat think, it really
0: seriously. I think that's kind of where a lot of that movie heads and mm. uh, where why... Um, why we're rooting for certain characters and hate others. True. Because they they are kind of such despicable people. Yeah. Uh, and des- not just despicable generally, but despicable in the, like, up to the minute. Yeah. Uh, and there's there's a conversation that, like, a really ugly political conversation they have early on. Oh, yeah. At the party? Uh, at the party. Like, yeah, yeah. There's a flashback, so a I, lot think of I can discuss yeah. that one. But, uh, yeah, there's a flashback where all the characters are still alive, and the Ana de Armas character is kind of humiliated in this really horrible way and uh, Yeah,
1: like surely you as as mm. you came here the legal way and yeah, yeah, so you understand the importance of Republican values that she mm. just put on the spot. A and, great a great little bit of writing here uh-huh. uh, when you watch Knives Out or if you watch it again if you didn't notice, count how many characters say the line, I got outvoted.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It makes no sense.
1: They're all dicks.
0: <laughs> they're they're all dicks. And by the end, you get to see. Uh, and I'm, I'm treading really carefully here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you get to see where a lot of wealth ends up. Mm-hmm. And I think when you follow the money, and like one of the final shots where uh, somebody's on a balcony, somebody's not on a balcony, mm-hmm. and you kind of have this this moment between those two figures or groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where it all kind of falls into place. I know. It's like and it's it, 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 it feels it has this so weird blunt. sort of this weird sort of uh, this like um, weird sort of cinematic cultural revenge, which is something my boss Quentin Tarantino does. So it's <laughs> it's just the murder mystery version of that, and I found yeah. it I found it actually very satisfying. I, I, I can
1: appreciate that. Yeah. I just found the rest of it so deft that the ending that was so blunt and almost clunky okay. didn't fit for me. Like when okay. I think about like the clue inspired movie that dealt with like social tensions uh-huh. uh, I feel like Ready or Not has it all over this movie in terms of how oh. it <laughs> handles, at least in terms of how it handles its themes. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Um, you can say Knives Out is a better movie, I won't fight you on it, I kind of prefer Ready or Not, but who cares Knives Out is still good mm. um, Yeah, I, I'm not I'm just not in love with this movie the way a lot of it people are, but what I can say with absolute confidence it is it is so refreshing <laughs> to see movies like this getting made, like,
0: even if I'm like- not Even if this isn't my favorite. With intelligent characters that's based on... If this was what we were getting... Wit and plot rather than you know spectacle.
1: People are noticing. uh After Murder in the Orient Express did better than people thought it would. And it's Mm. got a sequel, for God's sake. Um, And now this movie made more than people thought it would. It made like $40 million opening weekend. I think that covers more than its budget. It's all gravy from here on out. And next weekend, nothing's opening. So it'll probably do fine. (laughs) And word of mouth can only Mm.
0: help. Frozen Two can only hang in there so long. Well,
1: Frozen Two will probably stay number one, but I feel like uh or or whatever it is, but like Fro- Knives Out is gonna have I think it's gonna be pretty comfy. Yeah, yeah. For a little bit. I think it's gonna really hit a nice little sweet spot. And if they can keep this in theaters till Christmas, I think they'll have a nice little holiday payday where mm. you're tired of Christmas with your family, spend it without. <laughs> um Yeah, I think uh, if this is the kind of thing that becomes popular, Uh that if we start getting a wave of all-star ensemble mystery movies, how great would that be? (laughs) Wouldn't it be
0: great if that's what replaced superhero movies? Oh, God, if it was just murder mysteries. Like, we just got, like, one every two months. I can't wait to be sick of murder mysteries. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great?
1: No, this is a real treat. Um, My only other thing is I almost feel like what he wanted to do was like and, and then there were none, and start killing off the whole cast. Okay. Rad like rapid, like and I feel like he almost missed an opportunity. I kind of wished there had been no, like, no, a, I, like a, I guess, killer in the shadows, just occasionally, just like stabbing. No, I don't that know, that would have turned. In. I,
0: that would would have turned it into a different kind of movie. Um, eh, I, I mean, it could still be just as playful. I suppose so, but uh, I mm. I loved this. I loved the wit. I okay. loved the how well thought out it was. I feel like. I, I'm only now falling in love with Ryan Johnson. A lot of people were like really into him when he when he made Brick. It's like, oh, he's a bold new voice, and then he made Looper. Oh, it's kind of witty. It's alright. I didn't see The Brothers Bloom. Oh, you should see no- The Brothers Bloom. I just rewatched
1: that. Uh uh-huh. I remember seeing The Brothers Bloom when it came out and thinking, it's okay. Right. I just rewatched it like a week ago for an article I was writing. It's like really good. Yeah. It's, if you've never seen The Brothers Bloom, let me just give you a quick heads up on it. Mm. It's great. It's available on 2B TV. You can watch it for free. Uh, Adrian Brody and Mark Ruffalo play brothers who are con artists, but they don't just steal your money, they weave elaborate narratives with subtext in order to help you improve your life while they steal your money. <laughs> so at the end of it, they're grateful that you took everything that they own, because mm-hmm. now they are free, and have all these wonderful things. Oh, and then they funny. I have a new Mark, mm-hmm. played by Rachel Weiss, who Adrian Brody promptly falls in love with. And one of my favorite scenes ever is when they're on like a boat, and there's all this really magical adventure, they're trying to like make her happy that they're stealing her shit. And she just notices just like oh the name of the boat is from a Dostoevsky novel which is kind of similar to what we're doing right now at this table and Mark Ruffalo who wrote the con is like really <laughs> hey, interesting <laughs> it's That's all really about funny. it's all it's a con artist movie about using cons to tell stories mm. never seen that before right. really funny holds up great all right
0: um, so you should watch it sometime like yeah but uh I'm not a Star Wars guy, but I really love his Star Wars movie. Because yeah. I feel like it's the only Star Wars movie that critiques Star Wars. Yeah, um, Which is why a lot of people didn't like it. Yeah, well, I, I
1: suppose not. But uh, They yeah. wouldn't have liked Empire Strikes Back if it came out for the first time today. It changed mm-hmm. everything. It took things too seriously. Mm-hmm. It split up the cast. Gave us a whole bunch of stuff. Like, what? The Jedi Master is a puppet? What? Who cares? <laughs> and what's this
0: SJW shit going on? Like, they would hate it today. Yeah, yeah. They would
1: hate it today. Darth
0: Vader's his father, bullshit! I I feel like uh, The Last Jedi is like two and a half movies in one. There's like just way too much shit going on in that movie. But but I, I appreciate that it was trying to kind of address what Star Wars fandom has become from actual Star Wars characters. I love that. I I feel like, yeah, he, Brian Johnson, wasn't a big Star Wars guy, and that was his idea, is to kind of criticize the machine. And I thought there was a little bit of wit to that. And now uh, he's coming out with Knives Out, and I feel like he's really hitting his stride. I feel like he's not, that. it's not that he wasn't a Star Wars fan. Mm. I feel like what Ryan Johnson
1: is, we look at all of his movies, where Brick was a film noir, Mm. Brothers Bloom was a con artist movie, Looper was a sci-fi time travel movie. Star Wars was Star Wars and now mm-hmm. Knives Out is a murder mystery. Every single thing he does is in the pulp genre. Yeah. Somewhere. And he is a huge fan of all of it, but he loves subverting the expectations of other nerds. <laughs> so if you lo- if you're a murder but, mystery but nerd, he's... Knives Out is gonna twist it around. Yeah, I feel you're... like
0: I feel like he actually does it. You know, like someone like Joss Whedon, who just sort of writes jokes about it, like kind of the characters are self aware that they're in that situation, but they still kind of go through that situation.
1: I feel like Joss Whedon was Subversive when he came out, but as history goes on, what he did... It had such an impact, and it changed mm-hmm. the way people wrote a lot of TV and wrote a lot of like heroic characters. Mm-hmm. That what he did no longer seems nearly as clever
0: or different. Yeah, it's, it's been than at, when it came he's out. He's been outstre. Like I watched the uh, the only season I've seen of uh, of his uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer yeah. TV series was the first season, which is not and, the best season. Oh, uh, you can say that, but I'm watching this, and it feels like nothing's happening in the show. Like yeah. the you have to remind yourself that some of those witty asides that the characters are having were seen as really subversive at one point because they don't feel like anything now yeah there's like no humor at all in that first there, season.
1: there's there's more dramatic heft in the later seasons I, i'm I just sure, I just, yeah. just
0: for it in
1: what meager defense i can mount i yeah. can mount um but yeah ryan johnson is, is firing in all cylinders knives Out is not even my favorite of his movies mm-hmm. i don't know if he's made a bad one i think looper falls apart in the second half when it kind of just becomes a terminator riff no right like the first half is great and then the second half is like fine um, but uh, I don't. He's never made a bad film. He just makes interesting genre right. flicks, and I love him for it. All right. Yeah. Um. Let's move on. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, this next film, the next film we both saw. Uh, I look forward to explaining what this movie is about because it's called <laughs> "I Lost My Body." Uh, it opens with a severed hand mm. breaking out of a refrigerator. Yeah. And sneaking out of a laboratory, climbing on a rooftop, and trying to fling itself across as it Paris. Or just France? Um, it's in France, right? I thought it was Algeria, but let me Is let me look it up. Well, but anyway, it's, it's, it's a French film. It's a French film, uh, mm-hmm. and it's a severed hand crawling its way across the city, mm-hmm. like jumping from rooftop to rooftop, wrestling pigeons for to, for dear life, mm-hmm. fighting off swarms of rats. Meanwhile, a guy falls in love with
0: a lady he met on an intercom. Uh, he was a pizza delivery man. Uh, well, and we we get to know pretty early on whose hand it is, and we learn that it's our protagonist's hand, and so we're kind of waiting the whole movie to see how he and his hand are going to become separated. Yeah, how's the divorce gonna gonna yeah. start? Um, so yeah, the 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 bits with the living hand are amazing. Yeah, uh, just the way they are able to the hand can you know, see just for movie reasons. It's not, yeah, it's not a, it's like it from the Adams yeah, Family. Thing. yeah. You're right, thing. sorry, Thing, C- yes. Cousin It was the one made of hair, yeah. Apologies, yes. <laughs> I always get those confused. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ah, thank you, Thing. Yeah, it's uh, just like Thing from the Adams Family movie. Uh, it has a, a little stump, just like in cartoons. It, it doesn't even have, like, the ham bone uh, in the severed wrist. Yeah. It, it's just sort of, it looks like uh, like one of those old bonkers candies that was miscolored on the inside. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's just sort of It wandering around, The city trying to remain out of sight and using just sort of whatever means it has as a hand to make its way across the the city to what destination we don't know.
1: Yeah, Uh, we'll find out eventually, but yeah.
0: But at the same time, we get a lot of flashes as to what memories look like when seen from the perspective of your hands. There's a lot of uh, time and energy devoted to the tactile experience of uh, memories. So we get a lot of flashbacks from the hand's perspective. The first time a child touched this thing or buried itself in sand. And I think that kind of stuff is really beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it starts giving you this kind of poignant uh, idea of what your own memory is constructed of. Yeah, these... these it's something Mm. that I think Terrence Malick
1: played with in Tree of Life well most of his films really well yeah but we think about the way *The Tree of Life reconstructs like sense memory Mm -hmm. uh, and how things that we see things that we hear things that we feel they comprise just as much of who we are as our big lofty ideas Right. Um, so yeah the whole idea of witnessing the world from the perspective of just your hands just your sense of touch um, Mm. is really lovely and noteworthy (laughs) Um, but meanwhile, uh, we see our
0: protagonist. He is a pizza delivery guy. Uh, he's really bad at it. <laughs> he's, he's an orphan, which is significant. He lost yeah. his parents when he was a kid. He ended up moving in with... I think it's his uncle, or just uh, some a no, friend of the family. It's, it's like it's cousin or his brother. Yeah, yeah. he's, he's so, not so he, he's not that much older than him. Not much that, that much older, and they don't care. They're not like looking after him. It's no, just, they're just, just putting in a giving him a place to sleep. Yeah.
1: So our dude, our dude is uh, delivering pizzas. He delivers pizza. A pizza forty minutes late to a woman who lives on like the thirty fifth floor of an apartment building, and and her uh, her
0: buzzer doesn't work.
1: Yeah, she can't. He, she can't buzz him in. So on top of it being late, he can't even give it to her. Also, he was almost in a car accident, and it's just a big flop. Mess. Mm. Also, it's raining outside, so he can't leave. So he has this like five minute, really lovely, like almost profound connection conversation mm. with just a voice. Yeah, and he learns just enough about her that he is able to track her down at her day job, just to to mm. say hi and maybe ask her out. And it turns out she works at a library. He goes to the library. Can't bring himself to do it. Kinda kind of stalks her on her way home, mm. and then when he runs into her uncle, it turns out he's a woodworker, he's like, oh. and he might need an apprentice in his room with all of these saws, oh. and all of them are <laughs> all of them are lovingly illustrated because this is an animated movie. Um, and from there, you can kind of start seeing where it, where it starts to fall. Um, I love the sort of bizarre glee with which this movie is constructed the idea this the whole interspersing uh, to be fair it's kind of a dippy love story Mm. um with a guy who's frankly doing it all wrong and probably shouldn't be dating this woman because he kind of sucks like but interspersing that with a hand crawling across the city (laughs) in really intense fanciful ways Mm. um is a really amazing way to construct a movie. Like, I would love to have seen the pitch for this. Uh, and people going, what? what?
0: How does this work? And apparently the movie was in production for like seven years. There was a real labor yeah, it's, of love. And- it's, it's it's hand-drawn animation. And um, yeah, I appreciate that kind of absurd magical realism that's something you usually only get from international cinema, yeah. uh, at least done correctly. Uh, there's a... a sort of like a harder-edged version of Michel Gondry. Michel Gondry likes to sort of be a little bit, like, puffier and playful. Uh, and some people have been comparing it to Amelie because of its, like, vague sense of whimsy. It's not like Amelie No, I all. think
1: it's Michel Gondry. Um, I think I think it's, um... The best Michel Gondry is really well thought out. Mm-hmm. The worst Michel Gondry is just kind of weird. Yeah, This is and, somewhere in the middle. Well, the,
0: this is, um... It's more like, um... Uh, Marquez, like, 100 mm. Years of Solitude, that, like, tone, that kind of weird... Yeah. It's the normal world, but then there's this, like, one weird conceit, and it feels really natural, the way it's told. I, um... I love animated stories that either take advantage of the medium mm-hmm. and show you things that you couldn't do in another medium, mm-hmm. Um, which is getting increasingly difficult. What with you know CGI special effects and CGI animated films looking kind of the same now. Mm-hmm. Um, that severed hand could only have been done in animation or with like really elaborate CGI effects, and even that's animation. So uh, I-, I love it that it's actually like taking advantage of the medium in a way that the medium ordinarily doesn't stretch itself. I also love animated stories that don't need to be animated for any conceivable reason.
1: And that's half of this movie. Uh,
0: and that, yeah, and this movie gives me a treat because it gives me one of each of those. <laughs> it gives me a love story, which could have easily been done with live-action actors. And I know a lot of animators don't like that sort of thing, but I like that when you put something kind of realistic in animation, you get a kind of impressionistic version of the world, and I think it kind of intensifies the emotions.
1: I'm I'm 100% with you on yeah. that, because, again, everything you're doing is recognizable, and yet it's not real, and yeah. there's something that's... Yeah, it just hits you really hard. It's like watching a silent film. There's just this one element of style that is so striking, mm. but isn't getting in the way of anything. It's just a different way of doing it. I, I imagine a lot of people see this way... If you're not like familiar and really comfortable with black and white movies, uh-huh. seeing a movie in black and white when you normally normally don't mm-hmm. will be just as striking. Yeah. Um, my issue with this movie, uh-huh. I appreciate its creativity. I appreciate its uh, animated style. It's very very lovely, very striking. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it comes together very well. It's hard to tell what uh, what the point is at the end at, of the day, which is frustrating. <laughs> I think there is a point, but. The point doesn't seem to apply to everything that we've seen, Mm -hmm. and it almost comes across at the end as though the whole severed hand thing really wasn't important at all. Like The the other story (laughs) was really important. The Uh severed hand was a way to make this very slight and frankly not super great love story. Uh, more exciting, and yeah. to that extent, they did it mm-hmm. because cutting every time they cut back to the hand stuff, I was like, "Ooh, this is neat." <laughs> um, but yeah, it, the problem with magical realism is that just doing it
0: for its own sake feels yeah, I, insincere, I, I, and at fear they just they don't connect very well. I, I feel like the 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 charm and the peculiarity kind of are able to gloss over that a little bit, but it's still there. Yeah, uh, I, the. The climax doesn't make any sense given the context of everything we've seen before. It's got to be really
1: frustrating to spend seven years telling a story mm. when probably six and a half years ago, you mm. made a mistake and you kind of can't redo well, the whole film and like just reshoot the ending. You're just kind of like... I imagine... Because it's a somewhat immature... I know it's an adaptation. I don't know if the original story works mm. this way. But it strikes me as like a first film sort of a you know feature filmmaker who swung for the fences didn't hit everything but made a great impression uh, but like a, with a different draft with a little bit more maturity in the in the writing we could have had something like incredible as opposed to something just kind of interesting and odd yeah
0: yeah i agree yeah. i i i liked it um it's one of those, one of the filmmakers who just sort of got, I think, got like really fell in love with a certain scene or a certain idea to put in a movie without any kind of idea as to how that would play out or like feed into the story. Well, not enough so, like, ideas like, anyway. One yeah. of the conceits is the main character uh, as a boy liked to record things and carried around a portable cassette recorder. Yeah. And that reveals a lot of important information. It comes like from a plot perspective, it comes into play. But I'm wondering, you know, is is this supposed to be some sort of comment on his memory? And if it is, how come that's not playing a bigger part of the movie? Well, it's because, like, the the
1: whole hand thing Mm -hmm. is the idea of sort of tactile sensation. Mm -hmm. But the whole other big part of the movie is about his audio sensation. And... mm -hmm. This isn't a story about the five senses. I kind of wish it had been because you got two right there. Uh-huh. If we had found a way to incorporate you know, his sense of smell into the narrative or mm-hmm. uh, his eyesight more into the narrative than it just naturally is because he can see. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like you could have had something here where maybe over the course of time, different piece of him, pieces of him get lost. Mm. like his ear gets severed and yeah, starts and just listening well, to things when we like you could have done stuff when we first know? see
0: the hand it's in like a lab and we also see like an eye and I thought that this was going to be
1: like, like a Frankenstein just Frankenstein thing yeah well
0: like, just like a, a big pile of various body parts rolling all over the city and that I think how amusing that would have been no I feel like I feel like it
1: opens a lot opens a lot of doors mm-hmm. and it only goes through two of them okay. and I don't think they're the two most interesting doors however um, if you watch a lot of animation, if you watch a lot of American animation in particular, and you say to yourself, ah, we're just doing the same things over and over again. Mm-hmm. Watch I Lost My Body. It's on Netflix right now. Yeah. Um, it's certainly different. Um, I would not call it bad. I just don't think it's fully complete. Uh-huh. Feels like, um, you know, the same filmmaker 10 years from now could probably do this even better. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting animated film. I hope you enjoy it. Mm. Um, another film that's on Netflix right now Uh that I missed, uh, was Atlantics, and you Mm. saw this.
0: Um, Atlantics, uh, is a very, very peculiar type of movie. Uh, speaking of magical realism, it's told in a very sort of sedate, almost kitchen sink realist style. It's a Senegalese movie, Mm. and it's about... Uh, at first, it's about a bunch of uh, underpaid workers who have are being exploited by their boss as they build a gigantic mansion. And at first you think, oh, this is going to be like a Ken Loach film. It's going to be about you know c- class disparity and how the working class is constantly stiffed. And uh, then it takes a minute to turn into a Jim Jarmusch film (laughs) as the workers get on a a bus and sort of drive away from the city. And it's a really long, quiet sequence. And you're sort of slowed down into this world. And you realize that a lot of this movie is going to be contemplative. Uh, The... uh, The main worker we had been following has to take a job in Spain. He gets on a ship, and wouldn't you know it, the ship goes down. This is a a very political point, because this is happening with immigrants a lot, and people who are going out of the country to find work. They go missing, and people don't really investigate. Uh, He has left behind his uh, girlfriend, a young woman named—let me look up her name. Um, It's Ada. Okay. Played by Mame Bineta Sane. And she is sort of left a little bit in a a social lurch, not just because she's a young single woman who was expected to be married, but she just doesn't really know what to do with her days. And there's a lot of kind of long scenes where she's hanging out with a lot of her uh, rather uh, more more character-filled girlfriends going out to clubs and what have you. And she ends up getting married, partly out of social obligation, partly because it's vaguely arranged— to a rich guy who's kind of a dickhead. On their wedding night, their bed is set on fire, and they think it might have been her boyfriend, who is maybe dead. Ooh. So it's a little bit spooky. Yeah. And you're not really... And she's just sort of dealing with the social fallout of all of this. And then about two-thirds of the way through the movie, we cut back to the character who had been arranging the building of this big tower... And all of the women in the movie appear in his house, and they have completely white eyes, and they are speaking for the workers who may have died in that shipwreck. What? So there's this weird ghostly thing going on. Um, Creepy it's yeah. Is it scary? It's, it's, it's spooky and striking in a way that is completely unexpected. Okay. Um, I, I was trying to find like what, how people are talking about this movie and some people started referring to it as Senegalese noir. Hmm. And, uh, I I guess I'll take that (laughs) better than anything. It is, yeah, this really fascinating psychological study, which is part Gothic revenge tale, Hmm. And part working class realism drama. Weird. And those two things shouldn't go together. And yet they do in this movie. It's really, really fascinating.
1: Sounds it. Yeah. Is it, so is, uh, is it... Okay, I'm just trying to get a sense of what it's mm, like to watch it. You mm. say it's spooky. Is it fun? Is it intense? Is it like what? What should I expect well, I, going I, in? I
0: use the word contemplative, and that's what it's like. Um, it's it's going to be. It, there's a lot of sort of like spooky music that floats through it, but that really just sort of adds to the mood. It's not going to be engrossing like a gothic story ordinarily is. Um, it's it's engrossing in the way ordinary life is. It's engrossing the way a Ken Loach film is. It's engrossing the way a, a Mike Lee film is. Okay. Uh, it's engrossing in that we're sort of falling in deeper and deeper with these this interesting group of characters. Um, mm. If I do have any complaint, it's that the lead actress is actually kind of boring. Mm, that's too uh, bad. She she's the one who's sort of like surrounded by all of these other characters that have much more interesting things to say, and she's just sort of witnessing mm. a lot of it. Okay. Um, Let's see, let me look up the characters. There's uh, Aminata Kane as Fanta and Nicole Sugu as Dior. Their names are Fanta and Dior. Isn't that's, that yeah, cute? That's and fine. Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure how common those names are in Senegal. But uh, if they're not, that would be an interesting comment on like American consumer culture kind of leaking into Senegal. Sure. Um, they're really great. They're great. really terrific, and they they have a lot of of. Uh, Interesting things to say, and they're the ones who are sort of telling the heroine what's going on at all times, or instead of her just discovering it. Mm. But uh, as the audience discovers it, it becomes really kind of fascinating and complex and dark and, and very strange in a really gratifying kind of way. Oh, it sounds really good. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's really quite good. Damn, I wish I'd made more time for it. Okay, well, I'll have to check that out mm. at some point. Any last thoughts before we move on? Uh, no, we can move on. Okay. Um, you had something you posted on Twitter. As I say, this as a segue. Okay. You know what's better than two popes? Hmm. A
0: billion popes. <laughs> Let's
1: talk about the two popes.
0: That, that, was, that was an allusion to uh, the social network. Yeah, I, I I got it. Okay. There's
1: a movie called The Two Popes. Oh. It stars Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price. Jonathan Price. Hmm. Um, and they play, because right now, we're in a weird position where there are actually two popes alive at the same time. Mm-hmm. One who abdicated the papacy and the
0: other one who took over. Um abdicating the papacy is not something that happens. Not generally, no. It was really unexpected. Pope Benedict abdicated the papacy uh, for the first time in, I believe, 750 years. Like, Mm -hmm. it had only happened once before. Yeah. And it was literally centuries ago.
1: Yeah, people are usually the pope Mm -hmm. until they die. Um, And they're well taken care of, so they live forever.
0: To put this into a little bit of context, and the film does this, um, when... Pope John Paul II died, you know, the, the rush to elect a new pope happened, and there was a little bit of a turning point in the history of the Catholic Church, um, because John Paul II pushed some things in a progressive direction, but he kept some things in a very conservative direction. And, yeah, he was you know, a very moderate uh, pope. He was an incredibly moderate pope, and, you know, the Roman Catholic Church is a... Famously stingy body, we'll say that. Um not to offend any of our Catholic listeners. <laughs> well, but know, there's, there's, I think they would agree with me.
1: It's been described to me thus and mm. I'm Catholic, or at least mm. I was raised Catholic and Culturally Catholic. Culturally Catholic. That's mm. a good way to put it. Um it's been described to me thusly. Mm. The Catholic Church is slow to make sweeping changes because the Catholic Church isn't like only here for this generation. The Catholic Church mm. thinks in terms of centuries. Yeah. So like all of these things like birth control whereas we have been mm. living with birth control like our whole lives and it's a it's a regularly mm. understood scientific fact something necessarily wrong with it it's all, there's is- a lot of great great things that have come from it as far as the Catholic Church goes, this is like this new weird thing that has popped yeah. up just in the recent past. And, yeah, and so they're slow to deal to, to, to even they don't really wanna, yeah. t- talk about it. They don't really, want to make you know?
0: any, any decisions unless they know it's going to last for at least five hundred years. Yeah, which so, is
1: which is frustrating for everyone who's just alive now. It's, yeah, it's frustrating and if what, you don't live a five hundred years. And wants yeah. their religion to be
0: relevant. So that's me. There's, uh, there's a reason I'm yeah, not Catholic anymore. Uh, uh, That's fine. Anyway, I digress. But, uh, yeah, there was there was sort of a, a reckoning when Pope John Paul II died because we didn't know what direction the church was going to head in and who they elected pope was going to determine that. Yeah. They elected, uh, I think it was Josef Ratzinger. I
1: actually don't uh, remember his real uh, name.
0: Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, who was a German uh, cardinal. Uh, he became Pope Benedict XVI. And he was... Incredibly right-wing. Yes, some people even called him a Nazi when he
1: was elected. He was really
0: uh, regressive. Yeah, he was like John Paul II. Suddenly seemed really liberal in comparison. And and everybody was like, everybody who wanted a more progressive church, like kind of winced a little bit. Whereas anybody who wanted kind of a regressive church, we're fine. Um, But he was sort of a controversial figure. And another serious contender for when uh, Ratzinger was elected was. Pope, Fran- who the man who became Pope Francis, yeah, uh, and Ar- uh, Guatemalan Pope, or Ar- excuse me, Argentinian Pope, not Guatemalan. Uh, that's okay. uh, he he, he spent some time all over uh, South America, but yeah. uh, he's an Argentinian Pope uh, or an Ar- Argentinian Cardinal who is a lot more conscious of class because he. Uh, became a priest during a time of great political turmoil.
1: Yeah, and in fact, when he became pope, mm. um, he threw a lot of Catholics and cardinals off by eschewing... The refinery. Yeah, like he's still relative. He's still the pope, but he like he—he didn't,
0: he didn't want the big robes. He didn't want all the gold. He wanted to walk as often yeah. as he could. He yeah, he he yeah. yeah, he washed people's feet himself. He would—he would just you go know. to bars and talk to people. He was a big football fan, so he just would like—I ha- oh, didn't know ha- that. That's fun. Have, have a drink and watch football. Yeah, and, uh, seems like a. seemed like a, I mean, it's hmm. still the Catholic
1: Church hasn't exactly caught up. Mm-hmm. To progressive mentalities but, but all things considered a pretty damn progressive yeah, pope.
0: pope Francis is as the Catholic Church goes super progressive <laughs> yeah and uh, as the
1: Catholic Church mm. goes is a really operative phrase yeah, yes
0: yeah. Um, the two popes is a film about it's oh gosh what a great idea it's a walk and talk film in the Vatican and various locations okay. where popes hang out <laughs> between Benedict the Sixteenth and uh, Pope Francis before he was elected. Who plays who? Uh, Jonathan Price plays Pope Francis okay, and Anthony Hopkins plays Pope Benedict. Makes sense. Okay. And it's about how not only do they get to sort of know each other as people, uh, Pope Francis is a lot more uh, laid back, relaxed and groovy, wants to talk about the poor, whereas... Pope Benedict is really kind of strict and stern, and a little bit disconnected. Mm. He doesn't really. It's not that he doesn't take the job seriously. It's just that he's kind of aging out and is only interested in kind of hanging out and playing music and reminiscing and you know doing the the usual prayers. Um. The dialogue, the scenes where the two of them talk, are crackerjack scenes. Nice because we have. Two excellent actors playing world figures mm-hmm. with big ideas and interesting ideas that they can bounce off of one another. Now, this was directed by Fernando Morel. Yeah. Uh, who I was, I was hesitant to say his name because I don't know how
1: to pronounce it. I, I apologize. Fernando. I think I'm pretty close. And Forgive me if I'm mm-hmm. wrong. Uh, but he's... I think it's he, Mary Ellis. Is it Mary Ellis? Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Um well in any case Because he, he's Brazilian. Um he, he directed he co-directed City of God. Mm-hmm. He uh, directed The Constant Gardener. Mm-hmm. Um and now he's he, he he hadn't made like a lot of like big Oscar contenders after that, but there was like that was a big uh-huh. introduction to him as a filmmaker. Um how does this
0: play in terms of his filmography? Because well, it, it sounds kind of stagey. is the, director, it, well,
1: it, is the director's hand really important here?
0: Oh, uh, unfortunately, it's too important here, and um, that's that's oh. it kind of uh, kind of gets in the way. In fact, uh, this is this is a, this is a theatrical production. It's a, it was a play. It's based on a play. Right. And when you have just two characters having a conversation, I think it's okay just to. Sit back, set the camera in just a good spot and mm-hmm. let let it play out. Fernando Mariel if you've seen City of God there's like four edits per second and it's really like saturated and fast moving even Constant Gardner
1: I thought was like kind of overblown for considering what an
0: airplane novel it actually is there's way too much direction here like the the camera zooms in and zips out and there's a lot of fast edits when two characters are just having a conversation and there are certain sequences where it feels really inappropriate there's takes a lot of confidence Mm -hmm.
1: as a filmmaker to just let two people talk yeah and there's ways To make it dynamic Mm. And also just let two people talk A film that I think Mostly straddled the line Between trying to make it Visually dynamic But mostly it's about People talking in green rooms Uh Was um, Danny Boyle's Steve Jobs
0: Okay, yeah, yeah Which
1: is a pretty sharp biopic It takes place Mm. over the course of uh, Three, just before Three different product launches Uh In Steve Jobs' career And it's just people Talking to him Before these product launches Mm. It's kind of an odd Setup, actually Um, But it's just conversation That's it It's just Mm. talking to this guy Who's clearly an egomaniac Has a lot of odd eccentricities And people trying to figure him out While his relationships grow, evolve, and devolve And die Mm. Um, But Danny Boyle is is not a boring filmmaker He shoots the shit out of it Mm. But I don't think he gets in
0: the way no, well, and also because that's that's a screenplay by Aaron Sorkin, so the people are kind of chattering and making jokes, and the tone of the conversation is changing a lot. Yeah, uh, these are two men like in their eighties, so they're, <laughs> they're not really dashing yeah, about. Their, it. their conversations aren't really like. Well, I, I guess uh, uh, Pope Francis was in his seventies during the the course of this movie, but still, uh, still but yeah, uh, rather old. And yeah, I I love that Pope Francis has this reputation for being sort of like alive and with the youth vote. He's 83. Pope Francis is 83 this year. He's no spring chicken. You you don't get to be Pope unless, you know, you've lived an entire life in the priesthood. You get get promoted when you're 75. You know, that's not something young men do.
1: Um, No, I guess he's 82. Okay. Oh, he's 82. He's turning 83 in a, uh, in in December. So yeah, you're right. He's al- almost 83. Bo- we're both. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> so damn funny. Um, it's something you mentioned that maybe it's actually oh, uh, th- yeah. Uh, another please. thing
0: though, there's there's more to this movie because oh, it's, not, it's not just the walk and talk stuff because that's the best part of the movie. Oh okay. Uh, it's actually more of a biography of Pope Francis. So we actually have a lot of flashbacks to his life as a young priest in Buenos Aires. And uh, let's, let me look up the actor you who played young uh, the young cardinal. His name is. Uh, Juan Minujín. Uh, he he plays the young priest, and we get to see sort of before he was a priest, the things mm-hmm. that sort of led him into the priesthood. He was actually engaged to be married mm-hmm. at one point, and then turned his back on his fiance. so we, I wish we could have seen more of her. Yeah. Uh, and about how he sort of felt a calling and how he felt this need to push forward Christian philosophy out into the world, look after the poor, and especially at the time when There was a military coup going on in his country and priests were being vanished by the government for being too liberal, if you can imagine that. Uh, All of that stuff feels like padding. It's all really dynamically filmed and you can tell that's the stuff Fernando Marial is interested in. But it's, it's not why we're here. Yeah, it's we're, called The Two Popes. It's called The Two Popes, and I want to see these two popes talk. And the conversations they have are really great. Some of them are really light about sort of the TV shows they like to watch. There's a really a penetrating conversation about how they've handled the sexual assaults in okay. the Catholic Church. And, uh, I'm and glad Pope, that's discussed. Pope Benedict was actually really pilloried for uh, not addressing it and how it was this big scandal that was going on in the church. And he's saying, well, we're just this is not something we're going to talk about and whereas uh, Pope Francis actually confronts him about that there was the sickness in the church and hiding these priests was the wrong thing to do yeah and there and it ends of course with a confession by pope benedict to pope francis Ooh, that's exciting yeah about sort of his his failings in life and so all of those things about getting at the nature of their faith getting at the weaknesses of the church as an organization and exploring what the catholic church might need moving forward if it's to move forward at all Mm. uh, that's all really interesting stuff and it's all very relevant and it's all up to date and significant um Seeing how Pope Francis got there is a different movie, and I think yeah. getting a a, biogra- a biopic of Saint F- oh, Saint Francis, of Pope Francis, would have been an, an interesting thing that Fernando Meirelles should have done himself, and then give the walk and talk Pope movie to like Richard Linklater.
1: Oh yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or it sounds like a Stephen Frears movie. Like, yeah. there's a genre. We don't talk about this genre very much. There are certain genres that. Mm exist and we're all kind of vaguely aware of them but we just don't discuss them very often Yeah, and two interesting people meeting uh-huh. is enough or just spending like a day with two or there's a really great movie called south side with you oh there you go yeah, yeah. really great. wonderful motion mm. picture and it's just about the first date mm. that barack and michelle obama had that's mm. it it's a whole movie uh-huh. it's one day they just they went out and mm. they talked and they did some things and they saw it do the right thing and like it's just them talking mm. and it's enough it's fascinating mm. I remember the first time I really kind of fell in love with the genre it's not a great movie mm. uh, but it was a 2000 uh, T for uh, made for TV film called two of us you ever see this oh,
0: two of us
1: uh it was the story It was a fictionalized story of the last day that Paul McCartney and John Lennon spent together.
0: Oh, yeah. And and Jared Leto played one of them, right? Uh, No, it was Jared Harris. Okay.
1: Jared Harris played uh, John Lennon, and Aidan Quinn of all people oh, played right. okay, yeah. uh, Paul McCartney, mm-hmm. which is kind mm-hmm. of odd. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's them meeting at John Lennon's apartment in New York, and then having mm-hmm. you know having a long conversation, uh-huh. not talking about everything that happened to them in the Beatles, and then talking about everything that happened uh-huh. to the Beatles. And then they decide to go outside, but they're so famous they know they need disguises, so they both <laughs> dress as, so they both dress as Ringo, which is really
0: <laughs> which is
1: really funny. <laughs>
0: Oh, Ringo. There's
1: really good bits Uh in that movie. Like, there's scenes in that movie Uh that I remember very distinctly. Uh Uh-huh. And the reason I remember them is, some of them are well-written, some of Uh them aren't, but the reason I remember them is because I want to be there, man. There's a reason Uh why we have that, like, breaking the ice Uh question, Uh like, what three people from history would you want to have dinner with? Yeah. I want to see... Yeah. All of that, like, mm. if, if you were, let's say you were to make a movie, mm. and let's say you, if you didn't write it, like, the yeah. the ideal screenwriter wrote it, whether it's Scott Alexander, Larry mm. Karaszewski, Aaron Serkin, whoever you want. <laughs> what, like, two history-making mm. figures, who actually could have met, like, they would have been around at the same time, mm. which, like, two would you like to follow for a day just while they walked and talked?
0: <laughs>
1: like, would can, can yeah. you think of, like, two, like, who, like, could plausibly mm. have met, like, even if they didn't?
0: Like so, like two, like there was an actual conversation. That or,
1: or out. there could have been, and yeah. it's not implausible. Mm. Like for mm. years, my my example, what I just wanted to see was, I just wanted to see Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee off stage.
0: Oh, just like hanging out and having hanging conversations out at a pub and then and telling stories. Yeah, just hanging out at a pub. Well, like that would be great. That would be enough. i I'd, I'd love to see that play. I, I wouldn't want to see a play about that. I just want to be there. Exactly that's my point, I but yeah. I can't. So the play is oh. the next best thing or uh, O'Toole o- 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 and Richard Harris in any circumstances. Ooh, that's a good um, one. I guess uh, this is going to be so nerdy, but um The Two Popes is yeah. nerdy. What are suppose you supposed to follow Two Popes? I, I, like, I would <laughs> I would want to see a conversation between uh Richard Wagner the composer and uh-huh. his biggest fanboy Friedrich Nietzsche. Ooh, Uh, that would be interesting. Nietzsche loved Wagner's music and wrote about Wagner's music a lot and about how this was going to be like, this is like giving you the true essence of what it is to live, is to experience this music, and... Wagner, I think, kind of hated Nietzsche a little bit, <laughs> and hated that he was writing. So, like, it's like you're kind of missing the point. Just, it, if just you listen, all if right? If you don't know who we're talking about, yeah. Richard
1: Wagner wrote a lot of really incredible operas that we still recognize you know, today, even if you don't know opera, like *Ride of the if, Valkyries*.
0: If, if if you know uh, *Lord of the Rings*, mm-hmm. then you know Wagner's Ring Cycle, where a lot of that stuff came from. Yeah, Wagner's which, very which influential. Is also, is based on an, an old German story called uh, *The Ring of the, the Nibelungen*. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: Wagner yeah. is one of the most influential storytellers mm. of the last hundred Fifty years, yeah, and people don't necessarily give him mm. enough credit, but he, he is. And then yeah. Nietzsche was a very mm. influential philosopher who believed in how would you describe it? You're you're more philosophical. You're uh, you're more of a philosophy major than
0: Well, uh, some people call him an existentialist. He was uh, a really a proponent of that school of. Uh, sort of self-reliant philosophies. Philosophies that the the self, yourself is, is the biggest, most important thing in the world. He's, he's perhaps most teenagers. famous
1: or notorious for saying God is dead.
0: God is, yeah. God is dead in that uh, humanity has evolved past the capacity and the need to worship uh, yeah. th- living any, with any kind of a, any kind of ascetic lifestyle or worshiping or giving yourself to a being that's not yourself, he considered a form of mental illness. Yeah, uh, yeah he was very very anti-religion. He was also very anti-like science. He was anti-dogma of any kind. Yeah, it was just about what he called the will to power, which is like your own uh, self-esteem is maybe the wrong term. Like think of a stronger version of self-esteem.
1: Yeah, that's a good one. I would love that's that's a really yeah. nerdy one, but I would love it. The one that's gonna get made. And I don't uh-huh. know when it's going to be, but it's going to be eventually. Uh-huh. Someone's going to put this on Broadway. They're going to win a bunch of Tonys, and it's going to become a movie, and it's uh-huh. going to win some Oscars. Yeah. When Donald Trump was elected, but before he became president, <laughs> uh-huh. he visited the White House, and he was uh-huh. supposed to meet Barack Obama uh-huh. for, like, 15 minutes. And apparently he was in there for, like, an hour or 2 Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I want to know what they said. I really want to be a fly on the wall and hear well, that whole conversation because, because that must have been the most awkward conversation in the history of the world.
0: The problem is Donald Trump speaks in such an unsophisticated way. He's got like a, what a vocabulary of yeah. fifty words or something. Um, <laughs> no, I, there, there have actually been studies no, on I know. this. No, he has like, like, like a like third-grade vocabulary. Yeah, like the yeah. vocabulary he uses is actually, in terms of speaking and writing, uh, is mm. is like very limited. Yeah, really limited. So listening to him speak with anybody would just be aggravating i think that's the challenge though i think that's the
1: thing you try to because Mm. we like to think of when we do these like big movies of two people meeting or whatever Mm. that they're going to be these great big thinkers they're going to share all these big thoughts what Mm. if one of them isn't and the other person's stuck with them what's that like it's got to be weird i think there's a challenge i think someone's going to do it and it's going to be uncanny someday anyway we should move on uh Mm. so those are the new releases Mm. Uh, Real fast, because we're going to talk about some of the films that you've asked us to catch up on Mm. Uh, Let's go over our critically acclaimed scale On a scale of C- to C+, with C being average It's an average movie Mm. C- being better than average, anywhere from really good to the best movie ever And C- being below average, anywhere from not good at all to the worst thing ever uh, where do you put the two popes?
0: Uh, the two popes is a high sea. Okay, I feel like the stuff that really, really works is great, and I love the two leads. They they give two of the best performances of the year, but I feel like. The film wasn't confident enough that uh, it just allowed the conversations to play. I feel like a lot of a lot of the flash was d- a distraction. Mm, okay,
1: so yeah. fair enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on, the Atlantics currently available on Netflix. Um,
0: you know what, a C plus. It's really fascinating. I'm always game to see something I haven't seen anything like before, and this is it was a unique experience. I can mm-hmm. re- recommend it enough on that, but that it was also very good helped. Okay, uh, I lost my body. A, a, a C okay. it's it's stylish, it's enjoyable. it feels really great in the moment and all of the stuff with the hand is excellent. but yeah, I, I agree with your point that it kind of doesn't cohere in any kind of meaningful way. Yeah,
1: I feel like it's a really impressive mm-hmm. like swinging for the fences, first time out of the gate animation mm-hmm. uh, animated feature mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, it just you, it, it mm-hmm. doesn't really feel like it needs uh-huh. it, it, the, the story never really feels important. But I'm really glad I watched it because it was so striking and weird. So definitely a C. Like a confident C. If you're an animation fan, probably like that would be a C-plus
0: specifically to you. Yeah. Like that would be my recommendation.
1: Okay. Um, And then Knives Out.
0: Uh, C+. Plus. Okay. I really enjoyed Knives Out. I really enjoyed just sort of the wit and energy and construction of the whole thing. I liked all the characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daniel Craig is just a fun... It's not one of those best performances of the year sort of thing, but Benoit Blanc is such a great character that I wouldn't mind seeing him in several other movies.
1: I- I'm with you on that. Um, I'm not as high on it as you are, uh-huh. but it is still a C plus because it's Bright and energetic And the ensemble is uncanny And even though Uh And this isn't me bragging or anything I'm actually frustrated by it Even though I predicted where it was going Mm -hmm. It was still a lot of fun getting there Yeah, So I think that's a good sign Uh In a murder mystery when you know what's gonna happen and you still have fun because that means it has replay value. Right. So, um, yeah, not my favorite of the year by any stretch but a very, very entertaining film and I highly recommend Mm. uh, people go see it and have a really good time. Uh, Let's talk about some of the films uh, we want us to catch up on. Okay. Probably more than any other, people have asked, Bibbs, when are you gonna fucking see Booksmart?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I, I think I've asked you that a couple times. You have. Yeah.
1: You it's one. Of, it's the film that you told me that I needed to see before I did my top ten list. Yes. What's the film I told you you need to see before you did your top ten list? Oh, I don't remember. Fuck, dude. Sorry. <laughs> fighting with my family.
0: The, oh, that's right. It was. Please, with my please see that
1: before the end of the um, year.
0: Yeah, I. I... Unfortunately, we belong to a critic's body that does, uh, it's voting for the best film of the year really early in the year. We've already done our voting. Yeah. And that means we haven't seen a lot. And I feel like... No, we've seen a lot. Hold on, hold on. No, we've seen a lot. We've seen a lot. I feel like there was a lot that I needed to see before I make like a top 10 list with like a good deal of confidence. Yeah, we're part of the Hollywood Critics
1: Association mm-hmm. and we're one of the mm-hmm. uh, we're one of the voting bodies, one of the critic societies that gets their uh, nominees and their votes out first. Yeah. Um I don't think we're the first thing the Independent Spirit Awards is usually the first, but uh-huh. we're right up there and that's one of the reasons why we've been so stressed out and why a lot of episodes have been late is because we've been trying to cram in yeah, as yeah, many yeah. releases as we can and as a result, you know, a few things have slipped through the cracks mm. um which is frustrating. Mm. Uh but what can you do? Now, mm. I, I guarantee you that if we were voting for the Oscars, we'd be mad in January. Because we didn't have enough time to see everything either. There's just too many movies.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, especially if you're also working. If they're like if you're retired right. or something and nothing to do but watch movies, relatively mm. easy. Mm. Even then, there's a lot. Um, but I did catch up on Booksmart.
0: Okay,
1: uh, and I'm really glad I did because everyone was right about this one. It's <laughs> really good. So I'm mm. not going to spend too much time talking about it. Um, Booksmart did not. Make a lot of money when it came out in theaters. It was everyone thought it was going to be like the next Superbad. In fact, it's mm. actually structured a lot like Superbad. Yeah, about uh, two people and they're graduating from high school and they're trying to party and make it, the most of it on their last night. Uh-huh. and they get in a series of misadventures. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's, it's a Superbad framework. Mm. Nothing wrong with that framework. Mm. That framework is fine.
0: Just in, instead of uh, two horny straight boys, it's uh, two horny girls. One is straight and one is gay.
1: Uh, openly so Which mm. is which is nice And there's a lot of Frank conversation about it um, Yeah I, I, So it's uh, uh, Caitlin Deaver And uh, Beanie Feldstein mm. Who are Phenomenal They're together.
0: both Excellent In
1: fact the entire Supporting cast Is really really great This, this mm. is one of those movies Where there's a lot of people Who kind of come in For like two scenes And they're gone forever Yeah And everyone in the movie Makes a great impression Sorry I'm knocking things Over on the
0: table That's fine I happen to have a screener Of it like
1: right here yeah, what So what he's looking at so
0: there's a, Yeah the entire cast Is here
1: um, and yeah, everyone Everyone who has a scene gets laughs in yeah. their scene. Everyone who has a moment mm. makes the most of their moment while still creating a real character. I really like the way that the film... Uh, subverts our expectations of the high school genre uh-huh. and gives a lot of characters who should be one note characters, just a little more depth than you thought mm-hmm. some more so than others. Uh, sometimes they're just exactly who they say they are, but you find out that they're just more lovable than you thought because <laughs> yeah. you never really thought of them from anyone else's perspective, except the protagonists. Yeah, um, That's a work of rare sensitivity to mm-hmm. do this broad, kind of raunchy, not, American Pie raunchy, but, right. but sexual. Right. Uh, and they're drugs and all mm. that kind of stuff. And um, But to do that without losing sight of the humanity of the characters is mm. a really impressive bit of direction from Olivia Wilde, who is better known as an actor, but clearly is an excellent director. Um, this is the kind of movie that I imagine could very easily be made in an editing room because a lot of it's really episodic. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Mm-mm. As a result, it may be easier to put together after the fact. You can cut things out or whatever. But Mm. I don't think you can hide or obfuscate or anything Um, just how good her character work is. Yeah. And how exciting and dynamic the film is it all well, comes she, together like the, the bit the graduation bit at the end uh, just had me cheering so loud And i really <laughs> want to find a way to do it as a schmodown entrance wouldn't that be the coolest schmodown entrance ever just power sliding in in our cool
0: car unfortunately you can't fit a car in that studio but yeah I could try.
1: <laughs> um yeah I, I i really adore it um mm. it's may not make my top 10 of the year but not because it's bad but because i think it's actually been a really good year for movies all right in a lot of regards so it might mm-hmm. not slip in but um it's it's a delight and yeah. it's on hulu right now um so you don't have a lot of excuses mm-hmm. just go see that thing yeah, it's really yeah. really wonderful um let's see what else uh what else is on my list um
0: i finally saw uh we mentioned mm. at the top of the hour i saw the report okay you want uh, to talk about that, that, that now? is the torture report yeah um which is uh, it's an Amazon film, so I think I think it might be on Amazon, or it's coming out on Amazon soon.
1: It was doing an Oscar um, qualifying run. I don't know if it's currently on Amazon, yeah. but it will be soon if it's not now.
0: Yeah, here in uh, here in LA, it got a bit of a, a limited theatrical run.
1: Yeah, if you want to get nominated for Academy Awards, you have to play in theaters in Los Angeles and in New York City and be reviewed in the trades for that theatrical run. And the trades are a certain series of high-profile movie-related publications like Variety or Hollywood Reporter or The Wrap or a few
0: others. Well, uh, and the trades that is the people who work the trade they're for the people inside the business it's not yeah. i mean the public can access them it's not like they're censored or anything oh, the report is indeed currently on prime video it's currently on prime video yeah, okay. so you can watch um, it right now this was written and directed by scott z burns a famous screenwriter uh scott z burns has written a lot of uh steven soderbergh films he wrote the informant um he wrote side effects uh he produced an inconvenient truth. He's got a very kind of technical Mm. mind and now he's uh, directing, I think it's his first feature. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm wrong. It's his second feature. He wrote, wrote one called plutonium two, three, nine, a TV movie a little while ago. Okay. But, um, yeah, this is him. Uh, Scott Z. Burns is an interesting uh, filmmaker in that he likes sort of the really like technical stuff. He likes sort of getting into the nitty gritty and the details of sort of these real life scandals or the way like the legal profession works. Uh, this is him going for the like swinging for the walls. Um, if you remember, there was a torture report that was published out into the public, uh, heavily redacted, hev- heavily, heavily redacted to the point where it wasn't really useful, and it was all about how. Uh, Shortly after 9-11, there were a few gung-ho people who decided to put what they called enhanced interrogation techniques. Torture! Yeah, which was was torture as a a matter of CIA policy. And it was about how some people were really not comfortable with that, but we were so fearful and felt that it was going to be so effective that we should just keep on doing it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it went on a really, really long time. Uh, It was hard to... It, it was sold on the fact that that's like scientifically effective to torture information out of people, even though it never was and never has been. Yeah. And this is about the one heroic pencil pusher in the middle of all this played by Adam driver. Um, he plays Daniel Jones, the real life pencil pusher who is working on this for of all people, uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein, oh, okay. who is played by Annette Benning in the movie. Ooh, that's a good uh, Yeah. Yeah and how he and his crack team of uh, investigators pretty much stayed in the basement of a congressional building with their own independent server that's not connected to the internet or anything, uh, trying to find as many facts as they can about this, these things that don't seem kind of on the up and up. And as he digs deeper and deeper, he finds just sort of the unbelievably unbelievable depths of corruption and lies and cover-ups that were going on throughout all of this, Mm. and how as time passed, and as, you know, administrations went from one to the... Like, George W. Bush wasn't told about a lot of this. George W. Bush was kept in the dark about a lot of things that were going on in his own administration. Yeah, It was all up to Dick Cheney. Uh, And then Barack Obama was elected, and he heard some of it and tried to shut it down, but a lot of people were continuing it or were, mm-hmm. were covering up the details of it. Uh, eventually, once Osama bin Laden had been captured, nobody was taken to task anymore, anymore, even though these things like were approved by people in the CIA who ended up just getting promotions. And this is about uh, the Adam Driver character, Daniel Jones, trying to seek justice in all of this and how frustrating it is to work within this machine that is actually not designed for it. It sounds if, like a companion piece to dark. Yeah. Waters. I was going to say if, if dark waters made you feel completely impotent in the power of gigantic corporations and their abilities to continue to do malfeasance, mm-hmm. this is the same thing time 10 <laughs> because it's the government this time and not just a single corporation. Um, it's, really driving it's really gripping Adam and driving it's Adam driving and it'll it'll fill you with complete despair oh
1: so it's actually quite good then. Yeah. I feel like this is one that was like initially coming out and a lot of people expected it to be a mm. major awards contender yeah. and it just sort of dropped out of the conversation yeah. pretty quickly but you're saying it's actually really good and we're checking it's, out yeah yeah well that's great all right I'm gonna move on uh, a lot of people have asked Whitney reviewed this but everyone's mm. like when are you bibs mm. when are you gonna see marriage story and the answer yeah. is like yesterday uh, <laughs> but I did see Marriage Story. Uh, nice. And uh, if you missed our episode a couple mm. weeks ago, yeah. when this came out initially in theaters, um, this is the latest film from Noah Baumbach. Uh-huh. The latest film from Noah Baumbach about divorce. Uh-huh. Uh, it stars Adam Driver uh-huh. and Scarlett <laughs> he's, Johansson. He's everywhere. And he's a good actor. I love Adam yeah. Driver. I got nothing against seeing uh-huh. him everywhere. That's fine. Uh, Adam Driver is a mm. prolific and celebrated New York theater director. Uh, His wife is played by Scarlett Johansson, and she is a respected actor who Uh gave up a promising film career to work in the theater with him. Uh And now that their marriage is falling apart, she wants to move to L.A. and take more TV roles. And as they are separated geographically, uh, their divorce goes from... Tricky, but relatively amicable, Mm -hmm. to increasingly toxic and difficult as lawyers come into the situation, Mm -hmm. and
0: basically animosity builds and builds and builds Mm -hmm. between them. Um, Every little thing they say is turned against them in courts of law. They they tried to do it without lawyers. They have this romantic idea of how their divorce is going to be easy, and it never is. Yeah, Um, the lawyers. Mm I think, are the best parts of the movie. They, they control the conversation. They yeah, control yeah. the
1: conversation. Mm-hmm. They have the most experience. They have the most to say mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. I mean, I know they wouldn't work without contrast to people who were naively going through their first divorce. Uh-huh. But uh, the different perspectives mm-hmm. that Laura Dern, uh, as Scarlett Johansson's uh, attorney who is trying to get her as much as she possibly wants, and more so. (laughs) There's a part where she gets her more than she asked for, just because (laughs) she could. Um, There's uh, Ray Liotta, who is eventually Adam Driver's attorney, Mm. who is just as sharp and vicious, and I love the first scene with Ray Liotta, (laughs) in which he just tells Adam Driver how shitty this is going to be. He's even up front, he just says, at the end of this, you're going to hate me, because I'm just going to represent the worst time in your life. Mm. I'm fine with that. That's my job. Like, I respect him. He's a a sleaze, but I respect him. Um, And then there's Alan Alda, who's really wonderful as a lawyer who's trying to make it easy and ends up making it more difficult Mm. because he's too sensitive. Um, All of them are great. Mm. You know who I really didn't get that much from? Mm. Adam Driver Mm. and Scarlett Johansson. They're good, mm-hmm. but it feels like they're stuck in a snooty New York play and everyone mm. around them is in a movie with like a lot more like mm. reality and depth and complications and they're just doing one big scene after another scenes that are often so overwritten. I kind of checked out whenever they do like a mm. big long conversation. It just started to feel well, less and less real and more and more like a representation like, this is supposed to be every marriage, and I, I just yeah. didn't
0: feel it after a while. I felt it with Adam Driver. I gave Scarlett Johansson a lot of credit, but I've been thinking about a performance in this movie and mm. kind of trying to walk that back a little bit. I feel because like there, the movie is a, on Adam Driver's side, and I actually find and that frustrating. And because you No know, Bombach was the man in this yeah. situation, so he's going to sympathize with the male. Um, yeah, and as, as a result, all the things she gets to do, the short a, shrift character wise. There's a scene where you can tell Noah Baumbach is trying to direct it as if it's live theater where Scarlett Johansson is having a conversation with Laura Dern and she just sort of starts rambling a little bit and gets up and uses the bathroom and the camera follows, doesn't follow her in the bathroom, but just sort of like she shouts from the other room and it's supposed to feel kind of natural. But I think Scarlett Johansson isn't that type of actress, mm-hmm. and so she can't really make that scene feel natural. No. And you and I started to think about how that is actually extending into a lot of the rest of the movie, and it might be why it didn't have the devastating effect I wanted. Because when yeah. I reviewed this, I said I wanted it to kind of wreck me, yeah. and it didn't, and that's what disappointed me. I was me. actually
1: putting off mm-hmm. watching this movie, like subconsciously at least. Yeah, yeah. Like I wasn't making mm-hmm. a priority because... Mm-hmm. I find depressing movies depressing. <laughs> I know that sounds yeah. rather obvious, but I'm I get really emotionally invested in good movies and if it's yeah. depressing it can ruin me for days yeah. and everyone's telling me about how like how much this wrecked me and mm. yeah I went to bed a little a little bummed out and like uh-huh. hoping for the best for you know mm. my marriage and the marriage of everyone I know and but in the end it just felt forced and mm. kind of fake and really frustrating because, again, I think there are really good performances in here. Uh Um, I feel the protagonists are lost because Noah Baumbach seems to really favor one over the other, and it ends up feeling a
0: little gross. I texted you. He spends more time with the Adam Driver Yeah, and the Adam
1: Driver character is the one who sort of feels more slighted. Yeah. And, like, all of, like her grievances Mm -hmm. are at the beginning of the movie, and Adam Driver's grievances occur throughout the divorce. Yeah. Like, he was kind of fine with their marriage as it was, and of course the marriage wasn't happy. If one person's unhappy in the marriage, it's not working. Um, But, yeah, because the divorce process Mm -hmm. is what hurts him the most, it ends up making the film really lopsided, Yeah, uh, which is really, really frustrating. Mm -hmm. I was watching this, and I remember thinking to myself, Mm hmm... This is this is forty. If it wasn't funny,
0: <laughs> like remember when this is forty came so you out? Think that app- you think it's more like a, a little bit more of a midlife crisis movie than a marriage story? It, no, it doesn't,
1: it's it's definitely a marriage story. Mm-hmm. But it's all well. So was this is forty? I think this is forty was a movie about you know. What happens twenty years after the rom com? Yeah, Um, there are things I like about that movie. The problem with that movie, more than anything else, is that it's bougie as fuck. Well, the characters uh, are so most
0: noticeable feature of it. The
1: characters are so affluent Uh that a lot of their problems don't really read. Mm -hmm. And here, our Mm -hmm. characters are in such insular worlds, Mm -hmm. and they, you know, they don't have tons of money, but they Mm -hmm. have way more money than I will. There's a scene in the movie where they're. Mm. They're in divorce court and all their lawyers are sniping at each other and the judge flat out says, listen, I have dozens of people to see who don't have your lawyers and <laughs> are just going to kind of make oh. this really simple. Can we just move on and like get a continuance and do this another day? Yeah. And that's how it kind of was with the whole movie. I'm like, good for you. You get mm. all this fancy stuff. None of that relates to me yeah. or anyone oh. I know. And as a result, they feel There's, really alienated from
0: it. They, they have a young son in the in the movie as well mm-hmm. who... um. <sighs> He is used as such a pawn for the adults. It's kind of insulting. Mm-hmm.
1: The kid uh, has no character of his own, other is, than he's like bad at stuff. Like,
0: like he has he has problems that they have to help him through. But they send in like psychology psychologists to make sure he's okay. Mm. They talk to him about the divorce a lot. Uh, he is sort of like he's taken on excursions with one parent or the other. It turns out mom is better at doing trips than the dad, uh-huh. and he's only seen as sort of like. A barometer of failure Or success for each parent And he never gets to step forward saying To say I have some problems with that
1: The idea that that child is used As a prop mm-hmm. is so weird For me coming from the director of The Squid and the Whale Where the kids are kind of the main characters I yeah. appreciate that it's about kids Who are going through <laughs> divorce and how it's affecting yeah. the kids Marriage story is about the people who are married I get that but that the kid Is such a non-character mm-hmm. The kid is an obstacle Yeah I think that's kind of crap writing, actually. It's frustrating because, you know, in many respects, this is obviously the work of a very talented writer Mm. who, when a talented writer tries something really, really big and comes up short, Uh it can be really obvious, like, what's wrong? Yeah. And yet, at the same time, because they're so talented, I think a lot of people just go, well, clearly he's very talented. Mm. Yeah, but this isn't one of the good ones. (laughs) This is interesting. I'm kind of glad I saw it, but... I think this one's getting overpraised. But that's that's my take, and we're just going to move on. Uh, I saw a bunch of other stuff. Uh, what do I got here? Uh, Rocket Man. Ah. Finally saw Rocket Man. Hmm. Uh, Rocket Man is the musical biopic hmm. of Elton John. I almost said John Lennon, but he named himself, <laughs> he named himself after John Lennon and a guy he knew uh-huh. named Elton. Um, hmm. And it stars Taron Etcherton from the Kingsman movies. Hmm. And this is... This movie is two things. One, it is Taron Egerton proving he's a movie star. Okay. Because I gotta tell you, something. I only saw the first Kingsman, I didn't see the second. Mm-hmm. But I saw the first Kingsman and I thought, he's fine. Like, this is him swinging for the fence, as I said that a lot this episode, but this is him S- just going completely full bore. Uh-huh. Okay, this is him, he's gonna act, he's mm-hmm. gonna act really good, yeah. and he's gonna sing and he's gonna dance. He, and he's gonna wear crazy costumes throughout the entire thing and he's great and I'm sure he does his own singing I think he does actually okay. but he's actually really good like okay. he's he's I wouldn't call him a revelation because it's not like his breakout role or anything like okay. that but this is him cementing his career yeah I'm not the Kingsman guy I'm really good at this please give me good roles yeah and I think he's fine I think All he's right. gonna be okay because Rocket Man is such a clear shot uh-huh. like you just can't miss it um the second thing that the movie is, mm-hmm. is a big ol' fuck you to Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was wondering this, if you're going to bring that up. I, it, this movie is everything. Like, this it, just proof that Bohemian Rhapsody sucks. Mm. Bohemian Rhapsody made, like, I think it made like a billion dollars. It didn't make like an obscene mm. amount of money. And it won Oscars for editing, which is
0: which, offensive it's to been, me. Like, such awful editing. I yeah. think it won an Oscar for yeah. be,
1: for being coherent, yeah. given how bad the production was. Mm. But it's a really incompetently produced motion mm. picture in a lot of ways. Yeah, and. Frankly, it is trite, and it is inert, Mm -hmm. and it undermines and undersells so many important aspects of Freddie Mercury's life, and it only really comes alive in the last performance sequence. Yeah. Uh, And this movie was directed by the guy who uh, finished Uh the movie (laughs) for uh, Director Who Shall Not Be Named. Okay. Like when, when, uh, when director when, who shall when, not be named, when,
0: when name redacted, when walked na- off the set of Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah,
1: they brought in Dexter Fletcher, who had originally wanted to make it. Okay, they brought in Dexter Fletcher to finish it. I can't tell you what parts were his. I suspect they were the good ones because I saw Rocket Man. Mm-hmm. Rocket Man is a re- it, it, from a biopic perspective. Just in terms of here's the Elton John story. Uh-huh. his parents were assholes. He learned music. He went mm. from talented guy to really famous guy, yeah. did a lot of drugs, got in a bad relationship, mm. got off drugs. Yeah. As a biopic, it's just bullet points. It's a great musical. Mm. As a musical, it's great. As a Because mu- it's not just we're going to p- watch him play the songs. Mm. It's him actually singing the songs like musical theater okay. when they come up in his life, not necessarily when he wrote them. Yeah. Or when he and Bernie Tobin wrote them. Uh, so- um. And that level of passion and enthusiasm Mm -hmm. for Elton John's work really brings it to life. And again, Elton John had an interesting Mm. life, maybe not the single most interesting life of Mm. any celebrity of the 20th century. (laughs)
0: Like,
1: he certainly, you know, he wasn't Christopher Lee being a spy killing people behind the scenes (laughs) in World War II or nothing, but he had an interesting life. Mm. But, like, it's clear that they know that the music is why we're here and... We are going to incorporate that into the narrative organically, but fancifully. Yeah. And it's a real treat. It's I, I put it on. I was like, all right, if I'm going to watch Rocket Man, if it sucks, I don't have to finish it because I'm not writing about it. <laughs> Two hours later, boy, am I glad I watched that. That <laughs> was great. I'm going to listen to my Elton John records now. <laughs> That's all I needed from mm. this movie. It's energetic, alive. It's wonderful. If you missed it in theaters, it did okay, but it didn't do Bohemian Rhapsody numbers. Mm. If you missed it in theaters, check it out. Fun. Nice. I had a really good time. Yeah. Uh, also fun. Also really good time. Dora and the Lost City of Gold. I'm so sorry I missed this it's one. It's so
0: good. Yeah. It's so
1: good, you like, guys. It, it, it
0: looked really good. Like um I remember when the the preview came out. It's like the, this is this is exactly the kind of like kid swashbuckling adventure that mm-hmm. I want all adventure movies to be. Yeah. Like really kind of bright and friendly and I'm just really sorry to have missed it, because it looked really, really great. And I'm so happy to hear that confirmed.
1: Um, So it stars Isabella... She used to be credited as Isabella Moner, but she has changed Mm. her working name to Isabella Merced. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, You probably know her from Sicario, Mm. uh, Day of the Soldado, or uh, Instant Family. She's really good in that movie. Um, And yeah, she plays... Mm. Adolescent Dora the Explorer I haven't watched a lot of the cartoon I've seen bits and bobs here and there Uh Uh, But Dora the Explorer is a show for very little kids About a little girl In the jungle exploring things Introducing new Terminologies Mm. Can you say Coelacanth? Sure you can. Can you spell it? What? No, no one can spell seal. Can't. <laughs> um, it's got a bunch of vowels in it. What's going on? And also, there is a uh, a fox who steals things called Swiper. Swiper. Now, Dora and the uh, Lost City of Gold is really clever. Like when the first opening scene is just as broad and mm. blithe and silly and breaking the fourth wall and everything. As the original cartoon, it's exactly what you expect mm. it's going to be, and okay. then you realize that's her playing, and that's all her imagination. Okay, and her life is still rather broad and a little silly, but it's mm. not that broad. Yeah, and there's a really cute joke where she's at the dinner table with her parents. Uh, her parents are played by Sofia Vergara and Michael Pena. Ah.
0: They're awesome. <laughs> oh, and they're, they're they're both hilarious. They're living
1: yeah. in the jungle. They've been looking for like this lost civilization their whole lives, and mm. she's with them and. And she, I forget what she says, but she mm. says something like, "Oh, okay, so they're going, uh, they're they're going to a pyramid." Can you say pyramid? Yeah. And then she looks off to her right, and then her parents are looking at her, going, looking off to her right, and they're like, "It's a phase." <laughs> um, and uh, yeah. then it, it cuts to years later. She's a teenager, mm. and her parents have to go off, and it's kind of like a dangerous uh, yeah. exploration. And they say, "You can't come with us." So she ends up going to high school with like her cousin uh, Diego. Okay. Was also from the cartoon. Yeah, but it turns out uh, there's a bunch of bad guys after her parents, and they kidnap her, and they bring her back to the jungle, and she's got to lead uh, people into the lost city of gold. Mm. Um, what a fucking treat! <laughs> Just a really sweet sense of humor. The mm. the uh, Isabella Merced is such a really natural, wonderful performer. She can be totally genuine and honest, and give a great dramatic performance in something like Instant mm. Family, and then turn around and give. Like, a comic performance worthy of the Brady Bunch movie in this, where she's so out of place mm. that it it should be annoying, but it's not. Mm.
0: Um, it, it was directed by James Bobin. Uh, Bobin? Maybe it's I think, Bobin. I think it's Bobin. Bobin, uh, who did the Muppets reboot in, in the early 10s. Which is a great little movie. Which, yeah, it's really, really terrific, solid Um I think it kind of falls apart at the end but you know the, well whatever the, the, the sequel wasn't nearly as good but you know whatever hmm. uh, they're, they're, still fun they're far worse Muppet movies yes and uh, he also did Alice Through the Looking Glass which I think is visually a treat I think the screenplay sucks yeah but it's but that's a gorgeous not gorgeous film fault. to look yeah. at yeah. I, I still maintain that if you were to watch Alice Through the Looking Glass in French with English subtitles <laughs> it would it would do great Like you'd really enjoy that movie
1: I have a lot of films like mm. that yeah yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, So he really knows how to play this sort of trippingly light, really delightful children's entertainment film, Mm -hmm. and golly, I'm sorry, this one tanked. Like, nobody went to go see this one. I I think it it was cheap, Yeah. so it didn't do too bad. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, It ended up grossing. It cost $49 million that they reported, and it made $119. Oh,
0: okay. okay. So
1: that's okay. It's not amazing. Typically, if you're wondering Mm. what's considered a hit movie, I know that seems like a lot of money. Okay. Uh, A hit movie makes... Three times its reported budget. Reported budget. If yeah. it makes less than that, okay, it broke even, but not so much that we're going to get excited to make another mm-hmm. one. If it makes less than its budget, you'll mm-hmm. never see another one of those damn things. Right, right, right. It's, they might reboot it if it's like a popular uh-huh. like existing franchise, but that's it. Uh-huh. It's dead. Um, so this did okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I wish we'd see more of them. Um, the thing that just completely blew my fucking mind was we had that opening imaginary sequence. Uh-huh. Where everything was like weird and crazy and there was like swiper and everything like that and then halfway through the movie after they're kidnapped by bad guys and it's still within the realm of fun plausibility mm-hmm. uh, and like the, the little kids escape like her and all her friends from school uh-huh. they escape into the jungle and then the bad guy just says, Oh the children are escaping Swiper get them And then there's an anthropomorphic fox Who says okay boss And then it runs after them And it's so weird And I'm watching this with my wife And we're just (laughs) trying to solve the riddle of Swiper Like how does Swiper make sense You set this in the real world And then you just threw Swiper in there How do you fucking do this And then we realized Uh There's a brilliant meta joke Okay. That only exists to solve the Swiper dilemma because apparently you can't do Dora without Swiper, but you can't All do right. real Dora without 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 Swiper. Not making any sense. Okay. The first thing in the movie, and we thought this was just a throwaway joke. Uh. Turns out it explains Swiper. Mm. The first thing in the movie is a uh, is a warning. Okay. You know, like we've been asked to announce that oh. uh, everything you're about to see is based on a true story, oh. with one exception: foxes don't swipe. They don't do it This is all This is all propaganda This is flagrant Anti-Fox propaganda uh, It doesn't happen So basically They're just saying Everything with Swiper Is BS Everything with Swiper Is fiction Everything else
0: Really happened Oh that's but we, funny It's such a great Meta joke It feels like something From that George of the Jungle movie Yeah
1: It's yeah. really like Right on there oh. So like it's it's such a good line. It straddles the perfect line of silly, but I love the characters, and I got really invested in All it. Right. I really do think this is like a modern-day kids' movie classic, and it needs to be seen. So it, even if you're adults, see it. It's funny. <laughs> it's funny. It's light. Mm. It's sweet. It's energetic. You're going to have such a great time. Mm. And that's uh, Dora the Lost City of Gold. So uh, I'm not entirely caught up with everything this year, but that's the big stuff I was able yeah. to catch.
0: We are going to do our best of the year in late December or early January when the year is up. Yeah. Then we're going to all the rest of the uh, critically acclaimed
1: episodes through about Christmas time. We might catch up before Christmas but about Christmas time they'll all be just new releases and then we're going to do a best of the year and a worst of the year and then we're going to do our best of the decade and our worst of the decade. Sounds good. That's Get us through January because mm. the first couple of weeks of January usually sucks. There's not <laughs> a lot anyway,
0: or sometimes there is a lot, but yeah, it's all bad.
1: Well, usually, like, look, well, because what happens is like the first, like the reboot of the Grudge, or it's actually like a stealth sequel yeah, uh, that's coming but, out. But first it's, week. Also,
0: it's also called just the Grudge. It's right? called
1: yeah. the Grudge, and it yeah. takes place at the same time as the American mm. remake and mm. whatever. It's fun. Uh, we'll probably review that, and then we'll like get to. Mm. The best or whatever, or we'll just push back the yeah. review, Who cares? Um, anyway, that's our plan for the rest of the month. We're also mm. going to be doing lots of letters episodes. Don't forget to email us, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We'll be back next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, next week, the first week of December is always a slow week, and I don't know why.
0: Yeah, like I, you'd, you'd think they'd just start rolling in the awards stuff around now, but no, want like, get it around Christmas time. So
1: next week, we're going to be reviewing a couple of awards, awards things, but not like major Hmm. Releases Everyone's talking about. I heard really good things about Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We'll review that next week. Hmm. Uh, we'll also review the new uh, hot air balloon movie. I know you're stoked.
0: Aeronauts. Uh, Aeronauts. Gre- great films rarely contain a hot air balloon. Roger Ebert. <laughs> Roger Ebert <laughs> Roger was Be- right about that. Can you hmm. name an exception? Hmm. Um, some might say "Around the World in 80 Days." I wouldn't call that a great movie. It's, it's certainly a, it's a fun spectacle, yeah, but a, movie. no, I wouldn't call it great. Um, golly, yeah. What's a? Good I never saw movie? "Enduring Love." It was not about hot air balloon,
1: like hot air oh, balloon okay, tragedy yeah. or something.
0: Oh, um, there was a film called "The White Diamond." It was a documentary by Werner Herzog. Mm. That had a like a blimp in it? I'm going to look... Well, that's a blimp. It's different. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, like there,
1: there are several good blimp like movies. A, the Rocketeer has a blimp in it. Was, the uh, Assassination Bureau has a blimp in it. I didn't see the
0: Assassination oh, Bureau. Oh, the assa- right.
1: Okay, hold on a second. I want to make sure I get the, the cast right here. Because mm. the Assassination Bureau kicks ass and nobody talks about it. So the Assassination Bureau uh, is a 1969 A comedic spy thriller uh, starring Diana Rigg, Oliver Reed, and Telly Savalas. It comes back around to (laughs) Kotex. Who Uh, wants you, baby? uh, Diana Rigg is, I think she's a reporter, and she has tracked down a secret guild of assassins. Uh. And she gets gets herself a meeting with the leader of the guild of assassins, played by Oliver Reed. Mm. And she wants to... Get him to admit that the whole assassin thing's terrible and immoral and mm-hmm. And so what she does is she tricks him into saying, we'll take any job. If you have the money, we'll take any job. We won't refuse. And so she says, okay, I would like to hire some of your assassins to assassinate you. Mm-hmm. And Oliver Reed says, I love it. Because if they can't assassinate me, they shouldn't be working here anyway. So it's Oliver Reed and his entire guild of assassins trying to kill Oliver Reed. And Oliver Reed getting the best of all of them. And at one point, there's a sword fight on top of a blimp. It's awesome. Sounds, that sounds fun. It's a really fun movie. People really, really, it's based on an unfinished novel
0: by Jack London. And Oliver Reese, he's, like, such a good maniac. it would be great. I
1: know. It's so (laughs) cool. Um, So, listen, if you can track down Assassination Bureau, it's a lot of fun. People do not talk about it. You'll be, like, such a hit at parties, and you can recommend Assassination Bureau to people. Um, But, uh, yeah, I think Blimp is different from Hot Air Balloon. (laughs) All right. Fine. There's a a Blimp in Last Crusade. Last Crusade is a really good movie.
0: Uh, yeah. So, yeah some would argue with that but I agree
1: yeah, I think it's mm-hmm. a lot of fun that movie I think it does exactly what it's set out to do um, so so that's it for Critically Acclaimed uh, don't forget we are on Patreon patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network uh, we are on Twitter at Critic Acclaim I am at William Bibiani I'm at Whitney Seibold and um, I guess that's it never forget everyone's a critic I wanna go to
0: the midnight show I'm sorry what